Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Uh, before I tell you what's coming up on today's episode, get your phone out, send me an email with your details so you can come on and play our hugely popular quiz can you get to number 10 it's 10 questions loosely connected to 10 cabinet jobs the more questions you get right the better the job you get taking your place alongside our listeners and guests easy peasy you get 10 questions right you become our show's prime minister who wouldn't want to do that email me now especially if you are outside the uk so we're always looking for international quizzes but it's fine if you're inside the uk too email me matt.chorley at times.radio coming up on today's episode uh, no pmq still because mps are away so instead it's wednesday we've got disunited kingdom political news in the four corners of the UK, with a special focus this week on education because of exams and all of that. Uh, so we'll find out what is going on in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. But first, our columnist panel, no Alice Thompson this week, still away with her Hales Angels friends. So we've got Robert Crampton and Emma Wolfe. I think, yeah, summertime is classic time for reshuffle stories, especially because you've got, you know, at least a few weeks or possibly months until a reshuffle happens. So if then your story doesn't turn out to be true, well, hopefully people have forgotten about it. What do you mean? Do you mean that not all reshuffle stories are necessarily accurate? Well, I think they're not necessarily nailed on. They may have been right at the time, but maybe the Prime Minister's thinking will change between um, now and then. (laughs) It was right at the time. It was right at the time. Exactly. Um, But I think, obviously, Gavin Williamson is on shaky ground. We all know what's happened the last couple of years in education. It's not been particularly brilliant. But some of these quotes in this Matt Dathan article are brilliant. You know, you've got sources close to... um, Sources saying that Gavin Williamson's been going around warning that he knows where the bodies are, which is obviously a veiled threat to Boris Johnson, that if he does get rid of him, that he'll be dangerous on the back benches. I mean, it's the sort of thing we heard last time round when Gavin Williamson was accused of leaking that decision about Huawei and there were threats against Theresa May that, you know, she would regret it if she got rid of him. And obviously she did get rid of him. But I think, you know, it is going to be tricky for Gavin Williamson to stay on at education. You know, this piece suggests that he wants a job as the Commons leader, so he's still got that link He's still got that post in cabinet, but obviously um, much demoted. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I thought it was interesting if, if that is true that he's setting his sights at basically the most junior job in cabinet. Just like, just keep me in the cabinet. Just keep me in the cabinet. Um, Emma, what do you think? Um, it, is it does it matter who the education secretary is uh, if Gavin Williamson goes? Oh, this story made me so happy. There was so much <laughs> juicy. It was so juicy. And John, John mentioned the, the line about he knows where the bodies are. And when you start saying that about your boss, you know, you're on to a losing streak, really. But apparently he's also been saying that the PM is too weak to sack him, which is really not a good thing to say either. But the best of all was the unnamed Conservative MP saying that Gavin Williamson is wetting himself about getting the sack. 
It's just, it just made me really, really happy. But, um, oh, I mean, it's obviously been a really difficult time to be education secretary. You know, anyway, it's a difficult job, um, but especially in the pandemic, the edu- education has been in chaos. And you're not only dealing with sort of young people's futures and, you know, the, the hysteria around that, but you're also dealing with parents who get very, very antsy about all this. So it's not, it's not easy. I like Gavin Williamson. I like him for two reasons. Firstly, he said he can't remember his A-level grades, you know, which is brilliant. Good on him. He can't remember them. He didn't get three A's and he's not really, he's, you know, just can't even be bothered to, I don't know where my certificates are, actually. Um, but and, you can remember your, what was, what was particularly funny about that episode yesterday was Gavin Williamson saying, oh, I remember the day well, 27 years yeah. ago. I went and collected my results. What were your results? Hmm? Uh, no, uh, no can't, can't remember. remember. Can't remember. Can't but, remember. But secondly, he said he wants an end to Zoom learning, and you remember me blithering on about Zoom last week, Matt. I, you know, this Zoom nonsense is absolutely ridiculous. He wants all universities to have students back in their lecture theatres from October, and I think that's great. And even though universities are planning to completely ignore him, I think it's good that he's saying it. Yes, it is progress he's saying it. Um, it's possibly a bit late in the day. Uh, that's the only thing. that he, Maybe he should have said it. Well, he keeps know, saying it and they keep ago. just yeah, putting yeah. their finger up at him. The other thing, I mean, how worried should uh, Boris Johnson or any Prime Minister be about Gavin Williamson, um, John? Because I remember when uh, Theresa May sacked him and he went around saying, I made her and I can break her. <laughs> uh, back in, what, 2018? I mean, she, she, she survived for a year after that. And of all the things it did for her, it wasn't Gavin Williamson. No, and I mean, Gavin Williamson was involved in making Boris Johnson as well. You know, he was involved in his leadership team. And remember, they kept boasting about how they knew exactly the number that was going to vote for them in each of the rounds of the um, contest. So I think he was a good link between Boris Johnson and MPs. And as much as Boris Johnson might have a big profile, he wasn't always so great at knowing individual MPs and hadn't necessarily spent the time in building those relationships. So it was handy for him to have someone like Gavin Williamson around then. But, you know, if, if Boris Johnson's worried about someone kind of telling everyone what's go- the secrets, what's going on in Downing Street, you know, he's had Dominic Cummings. <laughs> yeah, he's had, he's had a lot the worse than Gavin Williamson. Gavin Williamson knows some information about Boris Johnson's response to COVID that Dominic Cummings hasn't already been gobbing off about, I just don't believe. Yeah, the main, the main, the main bodies that Gavin Williamson knows are the ones that he's piled up himself <laughs> at the uh, Department of Education. We all know all about those, the algorithm and the cancelled exams and, uh, the, uh, and all of that. So, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to know exactly what, might, um, what he might have up his sleeve. Let's talk about somebody else in the Cabinet then. Uh, Rishi Sunak, fascinating poll today in the Daily... Mail. Uh, more than half of Tory voters want Rishi Sunak to replace Boris Johnson when he leaves number 10. 47% of Conservatives who hold this view see the handover should take place in the next 12 months. The chance of sweeps the board among voters in a political and personal beauty contest between the pair. Um, what do you make of this, Emma? Is he? I was quite surprised by it because I, I did wonder whether, you know, there's been a bit of friction. But, you know, that story the weekend that Boris Johnson thought about threatened to sack uh, Rishi Sunak, went tonto and all that at the meeting. Um, mm. uh, it, it, I suppose that's, that it, maybe Rishi Sunak poses more of a threat to Boris Johnson than Gavin Williamson does. I think he does, and you're right, it's a beauty contest because Rishi is very, very beautiful. He's very shiny and kind of good-looking, and he reminds me, I was thinking, is it Bowdoin? It's not Bowdoin, it's a more country casuals kind of catalogue. I don't think he'd ever, has he ever worn a pair of, like, not crumpled up slacks in his life? Has he ever worn anything that wasn't ironed? He's so kind of, he just looks really, 
really um, smart. But no, um, in, in this poll, um, nearly four in five said that the Chancellor should be in number 10 in the next three years. And basically, there isn't really anyone else. I think that's the main thing. He's had a good pandemic because he's given away all our money. Um, but it's going to get tougher for him. It is going to get tougher when furlough finally completely stutters to a halt and when taxes have to rise and when spending cuts have to bite and all of that. So I think it's, you know, it's, it is hard. But yeah, there is a sense that Boris is sort of a bit flea, flea blown. Is that the term? Just a bit tired and a bit sort of run out of steam, I think. John, to be get over, the thing that struck me about this poll is it goes through. Um, what do you think about uh, the two of them, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak? And Boris only wins on one uh, um, uh, category of charismatic. Thirty-five percent say Boris Johnson's charismatic. Twenty-seven percent Rishi Sunak. Then a whole load of other things. Rishi Sunak is is competent, intelligent, trustworthy. He's got vision, leadership, compassionate, authentic. Shares my values. And part of me think, how does anyone know anything about Rishi Sunak? Is people just projecting things onto a man who looks very smart? We don't really know anything about him or his politics. Well, but yeah, I mean, there's a section where it says he's got the best policies on the economy, the NHS, foreign affairs, and apparently 44% of people said Rishi Sunak had the best policies on foreign affairs compared to <laughs> Boris Johnson on 22%. I mean, I work in politics. Uh, it's my full-time job. I did not tell you anything about Rishi Sunak's thoughts on foreign affairs. I'm sorry. <laughs> so how these people have an opinion on that, I don't know. But, you know, there's quite a few funny questions. I mean, who would you rather look after your, your partner job? go for dinner Rishi with? Yeah, who would you rather go for a drink with? That was Boris Johnson. Who would you be happy for your wife to dine with? And that was Rishi Sunak rather than Boris Johnson's. Perhaps not a surprise. I think the timing on when do we get Boris Johnson standing down, I think a lot of that will depend on when has Boris Johnson had enough? Does he decide at some point in the next couple of years do he thinks, hang on a minute, you know, I'm stuck in Downing Street with a limited salary you know, I want to go and make big bucks and go and do something different. We know that he earned so much more money before with columns, etc. So I think possibly he may, might decide at some point he doesn't want to carry on. But the other thing will be whether Tory MPs think him or Rishi Sunak or perhaps another person will be best placed to win them their seats in the next election. We know that Tory MPs are quite ruthless. And I think at the moment, you know, it's quite difficult to tell what, what will happen in the next couple of years and how people's opinions might change on Rishi Sunak. Because as you say, people don't know loads about him at the moment, apart from he's quite polished and he's spent a lot of money on furlough. In the next couple of months, when we start to see talking about how we're going to pay for all of this, changes in taxes, I think people might change their minds. Yeah, I was quite struck by uh, um, who would you trust to f- fix a wobbly shelf? Why do 44% <laughs> of people think that Rishi Sunak could fix a wobbly shelf? Uh, maybe that's a good test. Maybe we could try and set up uh, a wobbly shelf and see see if uh, Rishi Sunak really can. And who would you trust to look after your dog? Boris Johnson, 20%. Rishi Sunak, he's got, 30... I mean, he's, he's literally got, a dog, got a dog. He's literally got a dog. Although... I could fix a wobbly... I reckon I could actually fix an actual wobbly shelf. I'm just thinking it through. You could get a screwdriver and you could just tighten it up. Quite a simple... <laughs> quite a simple Maybe job. Maybe this is what we need get... to see in the, like, the next... You know, the, the TV debates of the next election. Yeah. Forget all of the, like, chundling out your, 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 your sound pipes. What we need is, like, practical tasks... Uh, where they're sort of, it's like the crypto factor. They have to look after a dog. They have to um, uh, fix a wobbly shelf. 
and have dinner with your wife without hitting on them. I mean, that's this is this is the test that we really need. Uh, talking of uh, talking of nights out, um, we've been asking uh, all morning for people to send in their worst nights out. If uh, either of you got a worst night out you want to share? Oh, John, I've just thought of one. Actually, one of my worst nights out was with well, I you. I was going to say, I thought I, I was, I was going to be careful there because I thought, I thought we were banned from talking about your worst night out. I was surprised you Oh, hang on a minute. Hang it. on a Let's be very clear. Let me do the one that I think we're talking about, just in case you're thinking of another one. <laughs> Are we thinking about the Tory party conference one? Yeah, yeah. When you and I may have had a glass of champagne and on the way to dinner... We, uh, it was a bit of a, we were going to meet a politician for dinner. <laughs> this was terrible. We went to meet a politician for dinner and we sort of had to cross like a big roundabout. It was a bit of a nightmare and clamber up some steps and all that. And I fell over and really hit my arm and uh, thought that was a bit, that's stinging a bit, it's stinging a bit. <laughs> Uh, we went to dinner. I think it's fair to say I self-medicated with red wine and ended up shouting at the cabinet minister quite a lot and then had to take myself off to A&E where I discovered I had, in fact, uh, broken my arm. Uh, so that was, yeah, that's pretty bad. And I'm holding you entirely responsible for that, John. That's fine. I mean, that kind of overshadows anything that I could possibly think of. So I think we'll leave it at that. <laughs> I'm sure I can think of others, John, but I won't do it on the radio. Emma, do you, any you want to share your worst night out? Well, I well, I was going to share the millennium. Do you remember the millennium? That New Year's Eve was just the worst, getting lost in the middle of Hyde Park, but really lost, and then all the gates were shut and it was pitch black. But actually, I've got a much worse one, which was um, I was about 14 and I'd said I was going to a friend's, but I wasn't. I was going clubbing. And I came back about three in the morning and my parents had locked the door, double locked the door. And so I had to clamber, I had to break into their broken down old car in the street in Mornington Crescent. I had to break in and spend this freezing night lying on the back seat. There was no blanket or anything. And I lay on the back seat in this broken into car just to wait until daylight would come because I didn't dare um, knock them up or, you know, they wouldn't have answered the door. And it was just a nightmare. I've never been I've never been so cold in my life. Emma Wolf and Robert Clapton there. And, of course, you can read Robert in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Dish United Kingdom. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. It's time for this. From Land's End to John O'Groats, St David's to Southend-on-Sea, and Belfast to Bognor Regis. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. This is Disunited Kingdom on Times Radio. Yeah, every Wednesday this time we speak to political journalists from across the four corners of the UK to find out what's happening in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. But we thought today, sandwiched between yesterday, A-levels and highest results, tomorrow we've got GCSE results. So we thought we'd do a sort of education special, not least, of course, because education policy is devolved to uh, each of the four uh, nations. So what is the picture when it comes to education, exam results, schools, testing and all of that? Let's uh, speak first of all. Uh, flying the flag for England, Sean Griffiths is the education editor of the Sunday Times. Hi, Sean. Hi. Nice. Uh, hang on, can I just say quickly, I, I may be talking about England, but I am called Welsh. So you can, you can, you can, you, your lived experience uh, of both <laughs> uh, you can bring to the table. Uh, Mark Bain is education correspondent at uh, the Belfast Telegraph, uh, telling us what's going on in Northern Ireland. Hi, Mark. Good morning. Uh, we've also got in Scotland, Connor Matchett, p- uh, political reporter at The Scotsman. Hi, Connor. 
Good morning. Uh, nice to have you with us. And uh, flying the flag for Wales, no fighting with Sean. Laura McAllister, uh, Professor oh. of Public Policy and uh, <laughs> Governance of Wales at Cardiff University. Hi, Laura. Borida to everyone. Borida, Borida, Borida. Right. Uh, first of all, let's start then. Sean, Education of the Sunday Times. Just, just paint us a picture of uh, what happened in terms of exam results in England and uh, how that compares to previous years. Oh, hi, Matt. Well, uh, A level results came out yesterday. We've got GCSE results coming out tomorrow. Um, what happened yesterday was that uh, there was massive inflation. So um, at least 45% of the, of the qualifications yesterday, the A-levels, were A or A-star. And that's a, a big jump. Um, people are obviously on the whole happy with their results because teachers awarded the grades this year. Exams were cancelled. And as a result, we had more A and A-star grades uh, a higher pass rate. On the whole, pupils pretty happy with what they've got. But there's a lot of concern and uh, worry about what will this mean next year? Uh, because if we go back to exams, will grades fall again? And is that fair on that cohort? And really, do we have a sustainable system at all now? We haven't had exams for two years. Can you really go back to a system of exams when kids have missed so much time and it would mean a fall in grades? So it's a, it's a pretty tricky and difficult situation all round. Yes, yeah, so that's a picture in uh, England. What's um what happened in uh let's go to Wales now, Laura McAllister. Uh, so it's the same. Just and also we need to just sort of explain all this. High is it's easy to tell that they're different to A levels because they're, they're called something different. Are the A levels sat in, in Wales the same as those sat in England, and uh, were they marked in the same way as uh, Sharma was just explaining term, with um, teacher assessments this time? Around? Yeah, broadly is the answer to that, Matt, in that the A-levels follow the same system of assessment and broadly similar curriculums to those in England. But clearly there is a Welsh dimension to the curriculum here. The schools had slightly different advice from the Welsh government in terms of how to award their grades. Uh, They were given a better, I think, a better set of guidance and apparatus uh, in terms of the choices they could use to reach these predicted grades. But, you know, this this is an incredibly difficult um, dilemma, isn't it, for the teachers and for the schools? It's kind of what's called a prisoner's dilemma in public policy terms, where you almost can't can't win because it requires all of the schools and all of the teachers to do the right moral thing, a similar thing in terms of how they award the grades. But if any of the schools uh, decide to Uh, be let's say be more flexible then the integrity of the whole system collapses and I think you know it's it's incredibly difficult for these students isn't it we know they've had the most horrendous year and now we're seeing a situation where people are challenging the integrity and the value of some of the top grades that have been awarded but I have to say you know there's been a degree of much more rational debate in Wales over the past 24 hours as well where People have quite rightly pointed out that this is an unprecedented period in the history of qualifications. And, you know, we can't compare with 2019 and we probably can't compare with 2022 and 2023 because it's apples and pears, isn't it, in terms of the systems that have been used? I suppose if you if you view the A-levels as just being the key to whatever you're going to do next, whether it's a job, an apprenticeship, a, a degree, as long as it gets you to where you want to be next. Let's not, you know, argue too much about whether it was an A or A or a B, because everyone, at least everyone in this year group, is in the same boat. Uh, let's go to uh, Northern Ireland. Mark Bain there for the Belfast Telegraph. 
Again, just to explain the A-level system in Northern Ireland and how are they marked. And uh, an even bigger number, I think, in Northern Ireland got A's or A-stars. Yeah, well, for the first time ever, we're looking at over half the students, 51%, got A or A-star grades, um, which is up. It was 45% last year when teacher assessments were used. And the year before, in 2019, we were looking at around about a third. So it, it is quite a jump, but um, the, the general feeling is that everything went a lot more smoothly this year than last year, when there's, there's a lot of tears and a lot of anger amongst students and parents at the way they, the algorithm. Um, I'm not sure if England had that as well, but the way grades were basically marked down and then two days later in Northern Ireland, they were put back up again. So Yeah, we had exactly that, exactly that happened in England as well. Yeah. So this year it's been smoother. Um, of course, the, there are going to be people that are, that are already coming out of the woodwork now saying, oh, the grades have been inflated, this is unfair. But I was at school yesterday, I spoke to quite a lot of, of young people who basically were, were thrown back into, into education at the end of Easter, um, straight back into assessments, which were pretty much exams without the name. So teachers over here have, have used those assessments to basically judge where their students are at. I mean, the, the kids have worked hard. And I, I think, I think they, they deserve the opportunity going forward to, to do what they want to do. And I think it's, it's gone a lot smoother than, than possibly a lot of people would have thought. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a sense it's gone better than uh, than a year ago. Uh, but, but let's go to Scotland now. Connor Matchett, political reporter, the Scotsman. Um, explain hires and how they compare to A levels, and what happened in with the the sitting of them, the marking of them, and is everyone happy with the result? So um, I'll have to admit, as as an English person who has decamped to Scotland, um, I sat my A levels, um, so I'm not hugely aware of of the differences in terms of how what it's like to sit them. But you know, hires are, are tend to be done a, a year earlier to um, advanced hires, which you know not all students do. And you also have national fives, which are the the GCSE equivalent. Um, they've been marked in a, 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 I think a very similar way to the rest of the country, whereby you know, students have essentially sat exams or assessments, um, you know, in all but name, really, at school. Teachers have then marked them against SQA, which is our qualifications authority up here, um, against their marking national standards, I believe is the, is the phrase used. Um, and estimates have been sent to the SQA. A few um, have been changed by councils and schools based on, you know, historic data or historical data um, of attainment. And I mean, the overall picture is broadly similar to last year's complete fiasco, um, which I think I think was across the board um, with a, re- a reversion, a U-turn to um, teacher estimates. Um, so the overall pass rate is down. Um, pass rates are down. Uh, oh, sorry, there's been a bigger decrease in pass rates for the poorest students um, in Scotland. Um, a grades are exceptionally high compared to pre-COVID levels um, and slightly higher than even 2020. Um, and it, it's one of those things where I think, <laughs> if to briefly go into the political aspect of it, um, I think there'll be a brief sigh of relief from the SNP and from Butte House that it's not been as, you know, 
huge a, a, a fiasco and scandal as it was last year. Um, but the critical thing, you know, th- those of us who follow Scottish politics, you'll remember Nicola Sturgeon's pledge to judge her on education. The attainment gap has widened for the fourth year out of five. That's a failure. Yeah, and uh, that uh, that does have been to, seem to have been something that sort of, well, at least haunts the, the education uh, system in Scotland has been particularly heavily criticised, but it doesn't seem to affect her politically. I mean, everyone says, oh, she must be held to account with what's happening in schools. Uh, and then she wins another sort of stonking um, uh, number of seats in the general election or the Hollywood election. Yeah, and I, th- I think that... The- the astonishing thing with education in Scotland is that it's been a, it's been fa- it's been failing in terms of the attainment gap for for ages. There's been a couple of reports and you know evidence suggesting that there has been progress made um, on it, but it, it, it's baff- I don't really understand why the Scottish government went down the road it did this year because the approach that they they had to qualifications essentially had the had the overall intention of suppressing the overall pass rate because by asking councils and and schools to compare this year's results with pre-covid results where you know the pass rate is you know down comparatively about 20 percent i mean just in terms of a grades you know we've gone gone up i think 10 percent in national five 20 percent in hires 20 percent in advanced hires gives an indication of the the kind of grade inflation Um, but the, the, Scot- the Scottish government deliberately went for a system this year in which fewer people were going to pass. Um, and that inevitably impacted on the attainment gra- gap because poorer students are currently in Scotland less likely to get a, an A to C at higher than, than richer students. And that, in turn, has affected university places um, where we now have the lowest proportion of the poorest students um, or pe- students who hail from the poorest backgrounds in Scotland going to university for five years. Now, that comes with the caveat of university is not for everyone. It's not the only positive outcome from school um, by any means, but it's a it's a pretty stark stat given that new places have grown by seven percent for yeah. the poorest of um, of Scottish students and thirteen percent rise for the richest of students. One thing I wanted to sort of explore with you is we're talking a bit about there about uh, the question of education policy in Scotland. Given it is one of the most distinct, wholly devolved issues, I just wondered to what extent education is a live uh, question, a live policy question. You know, if you went back a few years, at least in England, you know, Michael Gove, it was a big flagship policy of uh, David Cameron's that Michael Gove's reforming schools, reforming uh, the way they were run, the way they were financed, uh, the way the exams were run, even the grades that uh, students got. Um, and it, that's sort of really fallen away. There doesn't appear to be any new big ideas in education in England. I just want, in any of you could just sort of chip in uh, on this. To what extent education is a big policy idea? Is anyone rethinking, do we still need GCSEs in a world where everyone's got to stay in some form of education training to 18? It, how big an issue is education in your patch? For any, who, who wants to chip in first? Uh, can I come in, Matt? Yeah. Um, from, a, from a Welsh angle, I think it is a massive um, policy issue, but it's been subsumed over the last 24 months, really, by COVID and the pandemic and health issues. But but I, I won't be surprised at all, I think, at the back end of this year to see education become a really, really trenchant issue in Welsh political debate, partly because we've got a new curriculum that is rolling out in 2022 
which is much more thematic and connected than the curriculum that currently exists. Um, it tries to talk about some of the themes that exist in the Future Generations and Wellbeing Act, which frames a lot of Welsh public policy. And it's quite a radical departure from what we're currently doing. Now, there is there has also been reviews of assessment and examinations, but I think what happens with the new curriculum will probably stimulate a much tougher look at um, uh, the existing curriculum and uh, assessment framework as well. And, and I mean, speaking as an academic myself, you know, I mean, I, I looked at the figures that came into our, our Department of Law and Politics at Cardiff University yesterday. And the reality is, you know, hardly any of the Russell Group universities went into clearing for anything other than a couple of moments because, you know, we were pretty much everywhere oversubscribed. And that tells you something about the challenges we're going to face now, not just in our Welsh universities, but across the UK, I suspect. You know, we just don't have the space, literally physical space, even if we were to teach partially online, we don't have the physical space to satisfy the places that should now be awarded to people who've reached their grades. Um, I think we were a 350 full-time equivalents oversubscribed in law. Wow. Um, so it gives you a flavour of how, how on earth we're going to manage this as staff come October. Yeah. Um, that's a picture in Wales from Lauren McAllister. Anyone else want to chip in in terms of the, the, the education uh, policy debate? What do you think, Sean? Because the education editor of the Sunday Times, you sort of cast an eye at, right across the board. It's just not, it's not a bit massive. It doesn't seem like a massive political priority for Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer, to be honest. I think it's going to become a, a big political priority. I just think there are so many incredibly pressing issues at the moment. Uh, in education. Everything's a priority. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I think GCSEs and A-levels and that whole future of the exam system is going to be up for debate in quite a big way over the next year or so. Um, there's a whole political question about can Gavin Williamson survive? Uh, he has so far, but I mean, how much longer can he carry on in that job? Um, then there are, there are all kinds of other debates. Um, I mean, as in Wales, we now have for the next three or four years, massive numbers of 18 year olds coming through wanting to go to university and what do we do, build new universities or do we offer them something else like more jobs coming out at 18 degree apprenticeships? I mean, that's going to be and, and youth unemployment is going to be massive. So there are all kinds of issues swirling around. And that's not even going into things like the culture wars or, you know, the, the huge rows about freedom of speech uh, that, are, that are waging at the moment. So, I, yeah, I think there's, a, there's it's going to be a very interesting time in education. That's interesting. a picture from uh, England. What about in uh, Northern Ireland, Mark? Is there a, a live conversation? I mean, uh, having a uh, an even sort of viable uh, um, uh, Stormont Assembly is is the main priority in Northern Ireland a lot of the time. Is education an issue? Which is is that a live issue in Northern Ireland? Well, with education, it's always a live issue. But I think with with Northern Ireland, you have to see Northern Ireland in isolation from the the rest of the UK. I mean, I don't know how long you've got, but I could give you a whole history lesson as to how the, the education system has become completely overbloated with bodies looking after all different sections. You know, we still are in a position where we have Catholic schools and Protestant schools pretty much run separately, and it's costing double, double the, the finance. Um, there is an independent review of education due to start. Um, I think the, the, the board of it is just being assembled at the minute. 
uh, that is basically going to look at the whole education system that Northern Ireland has had to deal with since it came into formation in 1921. It hasn't really changed an awful lot in 100 years. Um, the, there needs to be something done to, to cut the finance. The, the, the amount of money being spent on education in Northern Ireland is, is it's astronomical because we have one, two, maybe even three tiers of the system running kind of side by side. I think the majority of people that, that live here want the debate on education. The problem comes when it comes to election time. It's, it's the same as everything else in Northern Ireland. People tend to vote along traditional party lines. They don't vote on policy issues. Trying to get that debate forward, trying to get that debate into the minds of people is, it's difficult. It's difficult to get them to vote on education lines. Yeah. Um, so the, the, there is a major, major problem there that it needs to shout loud, a lot louder. That's an interesting uh, question that I suppose you know, when people have different priorities, the extent to which education uh, decides how they vote. Here we're doing Dish United Kingdom, uh, political news from the four corners of the UK. We've got Sean Griffiths, education editor of the Sunday Times, Mark Baines, education correspondent of the Belfast Telegraph, uh, Connor Matchett is political reporter at the Scotsman, and Laura McAllister, professor of public policy and the Government of Wales at Cardiff University. So has anyone got a nice story they want to share, a bit of fun, or a story of their worst night out? Who wants to go first? <laughs> I've got a nice story. Go on Nobody then, let's have a nice has. story. Go on then, Laura. Not, not, Go on not, then. A, not a night out. I won't risk that one, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, obviously, at times of A-level results, every, everybody's focusing in on those clips on individual learners who've either done well or, you know, broken some magnificent records. And there's a lovely one in Wales Online today about a, a college student from one of the largest housing estates in South Wales, in um, Dowlai, in Gurnos, in Merthyr Tydville, uh, Dylan Williams, who earned an AAB in maths, physics and English language and takes up a place at University of Bristol to study physics and philosophy. Um, we've talked a lot about um, regional divisions, about class divisions, about school type divisions. And Dylan is um, from a pretty uh, uh, poor socioeconomic background. He's an avid skateboarder, but he completed his A-levels whilst living at home during the pandemic with four of his siblings his mother and his her partner, with the children all off school. And as he says, to top it all off, my chair broke at the beginning of the lockdown. It was a plastic deck chair because it was cheaper and it collapsed. So we didn't have enough money to buy a new chair. So I sat on one of those blue square cooler boxes and I did all of my A-level work sat on that. I think that's kind of a really nice image of um, some of the differences in uh, resources Absolutely. and capacity. And actually really existed. still really still committing and rather than using it as an excuse, really knuckling down in. No wonder he no wonder he occasionally went outside <laughs> with a skateboard with all that going on at the house. Uh, anyone else anyone else got a story they want to share? No? I think we're all I think we're all very boring, Matt, by the sense of <laughs> <laughs> None of you have ever had none of you have ever had a bad night out. I find that very hard to believe. Fine. Uh, I will uh, I'll let you it's a really good speech, but I'm really glad we managed to cover the differences uh, uh in the education system across the corner uh, across the UK. Because we, we sometimes we do slip into the habit of just thinking that Gavin Williamson's the king of the UK, or you know, you know what I mean. Uh I mean, it's a good reminder that uh, it's not the case and there are differences right across it. Really good speech. Uh, heard from Laura McCannis there, a professor of public policy, the governance uh, of Wales at Cardiff University, Connor Matchett from the Scotsman, 
Mark Bain from the Belfast Telegraph and Sean Griffiths from the Sunday Times. Thanks very much for joining us on uh, Disunited Kingdom. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.